Welcome to More Than Medicine, where Jesus is more than enough for the ills that plague our culture and our country. Hosted by author and physician, Dr. Robert Jackson, with his wife, Carlotta, and daughter, Hannah Miller. So listen up, because the doctor is in. Welcome to More Than Medicine. I am your host, Dr. Robert Jackson. In 1975, Ed Bruce and his wife, Patty, wrote a song entitled, Mamas, Don't Let Your Babies Grow Up to Be Cowboys. Don't let them pick guitars and drive them old trucks. Let them be doctors and lawyers and such. And by all means, don't let them get the COVID shot. Well, I don't think it quite went like that. But the title of my message for today is Mamas Don't Let Your Babies Grow Up to Be Cowboys and by all means don't let them get the COVID shot. For the last eight or ten months the main question in my medical office from my patients has been Dr. Jackson should I get that COVID shot or not? And that has been one of the main questions that I've had to deal with with my adult patients. And now, all of a sudden, in the last couple of weeks, I have parents asking me, should I get the COVID shot for my children? Well, let's discuss that today. Let's put a little bit of perspective on the table. For children, you must understand that 99.5% of all children who acquire COVID, have a very mild illness, and they recover without any significant issues. The primary risk factors for children are some of the same issues as adults, primarily obesity. You understand that there's an obesity epidemic among our children the same as there is among adults. Therefore, children who are overweight experience more issues with COVID the same as adults do. Children who have autoimmune issues or other respiratory illness also experience adverse outcomes when they acquire COVID. The other perspective that I want you to understand is the total number of deaths in children in the 5 to 11-year-old group in America in the last 18 months, is 94. 94 children out of all the millions of children in America who have acquired COVID in the last 18 months is the total number of deaths. Now, I'm not confident that that number of deaths, although that's nothing to be sneezed at, that's serious business if you're one of those families, is enough to justify immunizing all of the healthy children in America who will experience a mild upper respiratory illness with COVID. More than that, understand that 42% of 5 to 17-year-olds in America have already had COVID, have survived COVID, and now possess 
natural immunity. This whole issue of natural immunity will be the topic of my podcast next week, but we'll not delve into that today. The risk of adverse effects from the vaccine greatly exceed the risk of COVID in children. And we're going to discuss the risk of the vaccine in our podcast today. Please understand that all of life involves a risk-benefit calculation. Every day I get into my automobile and I drive to work, and that involves a risk-benefit calculation. There's a risk driving my truck to work every day. If I were not willing to take that risk, I could just stay home and not even go to work. Or I could drive a horse and buggy. It's obviously safer to ride around in a horse and buggy as long as I have a horse that is well behaved. But on today's highways full of automobiles traveling at high speed, it would obviously not be safe to put a horse and buggy on the highway. So although the horse and buggy might be safer, it's certainly not safer on a highway full of large automobiles traveling at high speed. Or perhaps I should ride a bicycle. Maybe a bicycle is safer for me than driving in an automobile where a high-speed crash could certainly result in death or injury. But then putting a bicycle on the same highway with large automobiles traveling at high speed would not be a good risk-benefit calculation. But then think about yourself. You allowing your child to ride a bicycle or a skateboard at play is a risk-benefit calculation. And I do know parents who don't allow their children to ride bicycles. In their determination, the bicycle is too dangerous. And the benefit to them of exercise and entertainment is outweighed by the risk. Even if their child wears a helmet or elbow and knee pads, they still aren't willing to take that risk. Or what about playing soccer or basketball or football? The exercise and entertainment value, the socialization value in some parent's mind, is not sufficient to justify them taking that risk. You see, all of life is a risk and benefit calculation, and we make these calculations subconsciously. All children who receive this so-called vaccine aren't going to have side effects, but some will. And some will have very serious side effects that are not being discussed by the mainstream media, such as myocarditis or pericarditis or significant neurologic side effects and even unknown long-range effects on reproductive organs. You parents must go into this with your eyes wide open, especially for an illness that is extremely benign in the vast majority of children. So let's talk about some of this in a little more detail. I want you to understand that in Pfizer's FDA briefing document that was prepared 
for the October 25 meeting, there was an admission by Pfizer that according to the company's own unverified and misleading math, that there is a scenario where there would be more hospitalizations among children for myocarditis, which is just one side effect from COVID from the vaccine. And this is their statement. Under scenario three, which is their scenario that predicts the lowest incidence of COVID, the model predicts more excess hospitalizations due to vaccine-related myocarditis slash pericarditis compared to prevented hospitalizations due to COVID-19 in males and in both sexes combined. That's in Pfizer's statement on page 33 of their own document. Now, I want you to understand that all of this is based on multiple assumptions, and it is a statistical projection. Nobody knows for certain how many children will experience side effects. Nobody knows for certain how many children will be ill with COVID in each of these scenarios. All of these are simply statistical projections based on assumptions. Their document concluded by expressing a rather callous attitude towards people who raised concerns about these interventions. And this was their statement. However, in consideration of the different clinical implications of hospitalizations for COVID-19 versus hospitalizations for vaccine-associated myocarditis slash pericarditis and benefits related to prevention of non-hospitalized cases of COVID-19 with significant morbidity, the overall benefits of the vaccine may still outweigh the risk under this lowest incidence scenario. Let me interpret that for you. In other words, they're saying that we have no clue what's going to happen, but it's always better to err on the side of forcing this vaccine on children who have a 99.9% recovery rate. That's exactly what they're saying. So let's, let's go and look at some of the statistical realities. First of all, as I've already said, as of March of 2021, 42% of children in the 5 to 17-year-old age group have already had the virus. That's according to the CDC's own stats. And that number is already much higher by now. We're already in November of this year. That's because of the prolific spread of the Delta variant since then. So the benefit in terms of lives saved is going to be much less than what's already been predicted because the majority of children likely already have protection from mild illness because of their own natural immunity. We're not even beginning with a clean slate with 100% of children being vulnerable to getting the virus. Plus, their own studies have shown among adults that those who already had the virus not only don't need a vaccine, but these shots pose a greater risk to them than to those without prior infection. 
The next thing I want us to understand is this. Even the infinitesimal risk of serious illness among young children is clearly limited to a very defined pool of very sick and severely obese children. Those who might benefit from a vaccine are those who are overweight, those who have autoimmune issues, or severe illness. It's one thing to just make the vaccine available for those children, but if you isolate healthy children, it's quite evident that so many more lives are going to be lost than saved. Because healthy children essentially do not get seriously ill from the virus. Why would we put healthy children at risk from the potential side effects of the vaccine? That makes absolutely no sense. The other thing I want us to understand is that COVID hospitalizations among children are grossly exaggerated in all of the data, and it's confused with those admitted for other ailments who just had COVID incidentally. Now, let's verify that. There was a study published in the Journal of American Academy of Pediatrics which stated nearly one-half of the infected children had a co-infection with other common respiratory pathogens. So what it's telling us is that many of the children who had COVID also had other common upper respiratory type viruses or infections. And that's not just in the United States. Scientists from the University of the of, uh, University College of London and the University of York, Bristol, and Liverpool, all of this was in the United Kingdom, studied the data from all the pediatric COVID-19 infections in the United Kingdom and found that 61% of the reported pediatric COVID deaths were overstated. So all I want you to understand from this is that COVID hospitalizations among children are grossly exaggerated in all of the data. The analysis that we've been given ignores the fact that there are numerous other treatment options for children and adults, not just kids, that would reduce chances of death without causing the side effects caused by the vaccine like myocarditis. We're not faced with the false dichotomy between a poisonous shot and no treatment at all. Why are the shots getting approval for children's use before other very useful treatment options like monoclonal antibodies? Does that make any sense at all? I mean, monoclonal antibodies are very helpful, very useful, very effective, and have no adverse effects whatsoever. Does it make any sense to you? Why are the dangerous shots getting approved for children's use before the monoclonal antibodies, which work much better and don't come with any of these risks? That makes no sense to me. And more than that, the, the so-called vaccine loses its effectiveness in five to six months, whereas the benefit of the monoclonal antibodies has been shown to work 
preemptively for up to eight months or longer. The next thing I want us to look at is this. Are we really going to trust Pfizer's numbers? I mean, independent studies have found the risk of myocarditis to be much greater than Pfizer is admitting to. A preprint from the University of California, Davis, found that for boys 12 to 15 without medical comorbidities receiving their second mRNA vaccination dose, the rate of cardiac adverse events is 3.7 to 6.1 times higher than their 120-day COVID-19 hospitalization risk. And that was in August 21 of this year. And then look at this. A recent study in the Danish population published in the Pediatric Infectious Disease Journal found that the incidence of myopericarditis after COVID-19 vaccination among males appears higher than reports from the United States. Oh my goodness, have you ever wondered why it always seems that the negative information on the vaccines is downplayed and the supposed positive benefits are exaggerated in the United States more than every other country in the world? Did you know that in um, uh, Sweden and in Norway that these vaccines have been disallowed for children? Why not in the United States? Are our children physiologically different from the children in the Scandinavian countries? Now, let's look at some statistical analysis by a gentleman who is an economist and a statistician. His name is Dr. Toby Rogers, and he looks at an issue called the number needed to vaccinate. Now, this number needed to treat slash number needed to vaccinate is an important issue. The pharmaceutical reps bring to us physicians new drugs all the time. And one of the things that they bring to us is a calculation called the number needed to treat. And oftentimes they'll bring me a a medication, for example, a, a, a statin drug that lowers cholesterol. And they'll say to us physicians, the number needed to treat, doctor, to decrease or, or, or reduce the risk of one heart attack, one myocardial event is 24 or 42. You have to treat 40 patients with this drug to decrease the risk of a myocardial infarction in one patient. Well, that, that's a reasonable number. That means I'm going to have to treat... 40 patients with this new statin drug, this cholesterol-lowering agent, in order to prevent one person from having a heart attack. Or they bring me a medicine that reduces hospitalizations from congestive heart failure. And they said, you're going to have to treat X number of patients in order to to keep one person out of the hospital for congestive heart failure. Well, numbers less than a hundred are reasonable. And and I can say to myself, okay, this is a drug that I would be willing to prescribe. So what's the number needed to treat or needed to vaccinate to prevent a single COVID-19 fatality in this pediatric age group that we're talking about? How many people do you have to treat in order to 
to save one life. So what is the actual number needed to treat? Dr. Toby Rogers, an economist and statistician, laid out the numbers in very simple arithmetic terms just last week. He concluded that if we give Pfizer 80% effectiveness against the 57 reported fatalities due to COVID over the last six months, it would work out to saving 45 lives after we would vaccinate 28 million children. That would calculate to a number needed to vaccinate to prevent a single COVID death of 630,775 patients. Now, he arrives at that number by dividing 28 million children in that age group, 5 to 11 in the United States, by 45. But because it's a two-dose regimen, we would have to vaccinate 1,261,000 total injections. Now, let's look at the risk. We have to consider that there were 128 reported vaccine deaths among those aged 12 to 24 as a baseline in all of the United States last year. Then we would utilize the estimate that VAERS undercounts fatal reactions by a factor of 41. That would amount to 5,248 fatal side effects due to the vaccine during that same period of time. That's 41 times 128, arriving at 5,248 fatal side effects due to the vaccine during that same six-month period of time. Thus, in order to save 45 children, we would kill 5,248 children due to the vaccine for a ratio of one child saved for 117 fatally injured by the vaccine. Now, put this in perspective. This analysis doesn't account for the fact that healthy children are essentially unaffected by COVID. And for them, there are essentially zero COVID deaths. More than that, half the children likely already have had COVID and possess natural immunity. This analysis does not take into account the fact that there are other treatments available like ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine and a vitamin regimen that are quite effective for children. And on the risk side, we have no idea what are the long-range implications for these vaccines on our children that may also create excess deaths well into the future. So let me say that again. What is the number needed to vaccinate to prevent a single fatality in this 5 to 11 age group? It's 630,775. But because it's a two-dose regimen, we would have to calculate that we would have to 
inject 1,261,550 times. This is literally the worst number needed to vaccinate in the history of all vaccinations. It's not a compelling case for injecting our children. Let's ask the question, how will one child be saved by the COVID shot? The injection does not confer antibody immunity to the COVID-19 virus. It only promotes antibodies to the synthetic spike protein. And that spike protein is not specific to the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Number two, the antibodies produced do not provide protection from the virus itself, only to that spike protein. Number three, the injection does not reduce hospitalizations or deaths. Number four, the injection does not reduce severe symptoms, but only reduces mild to moderate symptoms. Number five, the injection does not prevent the transmission of the virus. None of the things that this so-called vaccine, this genetic therapeutic agent, has been purported to do, it simply does not do. More than that, I am terribly concerned that this is an experiment on our children and the long-range implications on the health and well-being of our children is simply unknown. It is foolishness for us to experiment on our children when the vast majority of them will survive COVID and will only experience mild to moderate symptoms. Why would we put an entire generation of our children at risk with a vaccine that can potentially cause such significant illness such as myocarditis and pericarditis, symptoms that may cause health and cardiac issues for our children for years to come. Mamas, don't let your babies grow up to be cowboys. And by all means, do not let them get the COVID shot. That is my best advice to you. Thank you for listening to this edition of More Than Medicine. For more information about the Jackson Family Ministry, Dr. Jackson's books, or to schedule a speaking engagement, go to their Facebook page, Instagram, or their webpage at jacksonfamilyministry.com. If you'd like to contribute to further the efforts of the ministry, you can support them at patreon.com forward slash Jackson Family Ministries. This podcast is produced by Bob Sloan Audio Production at bobsloan.com.